0: Okay, so this is the the kingdom parables. This is lesson number two in this uh, series. The uh, the, uh, title of this lesson is Types of Parables on the Kingdom. So last week uh, I introduced the idea of kingdom parables and I began with a history of the ideas of king and kingdom as they were developed throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. Now for those not here and those who may have forgotten, there were a few key points that I mentioned that help us understand the idea of kingdom. So just a little bit of review. First of all, God introduced the idea of the kingdom of heaven and the Messiah as a king. He introduced this idea very slowly throughout the Old Testament. We talked about progressive revelation. That's the idea where God reveals an idea, but He does it in, in, in stages, not all at once. Uh, also, uh, before Jesus arrived, the people, the Jews, understood that the Messiah was to be a ruler or a king of sorts with supernatural power who would reestablish the kingdom of Judah here on earth. So they were looking for a kingdom much like the kingdom of Solomon, uh, with its glory and its political power. That's what they were anticipating. When John the Baptist came along and preached about the kingdom being near, the people enthusiastically received his message. We read about all the people that were coming out to John. It wasn't just because of John. It was what he was announcing. The kingdom, that, that thing that you've been waiting for for centuries, well, it's near. And so people were baptized in order to prepare for the arrival of the kingdom. And then when Jesus comes along and begins to preach, He corrects the false ideas and interpretations about the kingdom and He revealed the ideas about the kingdom that had not yet been understood. For example, Jesus taught that the king and the kingdom are united by faith and not by politics or culture. Uh, He revealed that the kingdom is a spiritual thing, not a geopolitical thing. He taught that the kingdom is always evolving. In other words, what it is now is not what it will be in the future. So once people heard these uh, teachings, many of them turned away from Jesus because he was not describing the kingdom that they had hoped for, uh, the one that they believed would eventually come. For example, many Jews today still await and work towards the idea of a geopolitical kingdom or a human Messiah or ruler who will deliver this kingdom to them, mostly among the very Orthodox Jews. They they still hold to a personal Messiah, many of them. So for those who believed in Jesus and His teaching about the kingdom, however, the Lord continued to instruct them concerning the kingdom using parables. And the reason that He used parables threefold. Number one, the people needed more teaching concerning this dimension that they were entering and they were to dwell in forever. And so they needed instruction about the kingdom. And so Jesus provided that instruction, but He did it using the form of parables. Secondly, he used parables because he wanted only the disciples to understand kingdom matters. He didn't want unbelievers or his opponents to understand the things that he was explaining concerning the kingdom. Oh they heard the story all right but they didn't understand the secondary meaning and that was on purpose. And then thirdly since the kingdom was evolving he wanted to instruct his disciples in the differences between how the kingdom exists now and what its final condition will be in the future. And so we, you and I, we're among those who have believed and entered and we exist within the kingdom of God. And for this reason, we're studying the parables to understand better this dimension in which we live. We are in the kingdom. This kingdom that He talked about, we're part of it, you and I. And so we're we're studying the parables to understand what about this kingdom that we exist in? What about this kingdom? How will it be in the future? So for that reason we're focusing in on all the kingdom parables that we read about in the New Testament. There are 13 of them. Mentioned that last week. So we'll be studying parables and it would help to know what a parable is very quickly. A parable is a literary or storytelling or teaching device. The word parable comes from a Greek word which means to lay beside or to place alongside. The point is that in a parable you place a story or an idea which is simple to understand and you place it next to a story or an idea which is complex or hidden. So the simple story mirrors the complex story in order to make it understandable. Jesus is explaining spiritual things. He's explaining things that happen in heaven. He's explaining things that will happen in the future. Very difficult to understand. So He he gives simple stories that mirror or reflect the more complicated unseen things. In Jesus' case he would lay stories which were easily visualized alongside principles and concepts in the spiritual world which could not be seen. His parables using earthly objects and human situations mirrored spiritual ideas in the heavenly dimension. As I said in the New Testament Jesus spoke actually 43 parables in all and of these 13 were about the kingdom of heaven. Very quickly, the 13, five of them were agriculture. He used agricultural examples. In four of them, uh, he talks about money. Two of them have situations inv- involving feasts. One, a story about fishing, and another one, an example, using cooking as its basis. So these examples for parables were not only easy for the people of that time to understand, they're also generic to every culture and every age. So every disciple, regardless of time and place, can relate to and learn from the parables of the kingdom. That's not an easy thing. Imagine a story that someone two thousand years ago, quite removed from our American culture today, living in you know Palestine, Israel, two thousand years ago, agricultural. I mean, no, tech, none of the technology that we have today, and yet the parable that Jesus spoke to explain something in the kingdom is as relevant today as it was then. We 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 understand the very same things from it. So really, a, a marvelous. Um, a marvelous teaching tool. So we're going to start our study with a review of two parables. We're going to do two parables today that use different images to make fundamental points about the kingdom. And so we begin with the kingdom is like leaven. The kingdom is like leaven. So in Matthew 13 verse 33 says, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And then in Luke chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, he writes, or or Matthew writes, and again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So, pretty much the same parable here, but given twice. Let's start a little bit with the uh, let's start with a little bit of history just about leaven. Leaven was an important element in Jewish life because bread was a main food item and also because leaven was used as a religious symbol as well. Leaven was produced by mixing various plants or kernels of grain together and allowing these to ferment. In bread making, leaven was usually a piece of dough that was left over from a previous batch of bread, left to ferment before adding flour. Now the expression hidden in the flour simply means to add flour. Nothing mysterious about that. And three pecks of meal was about a bushel, 56 pounds, which was a normal batch of bread and baked products that was made at one time. So in the Old Testament, leaven was prohibited during the feast of the Passover. Read about that in Exodus 23 and Exodus 34. Leaven represented decay and impurity. And so a special effort was made to avoid it during special feasts and special offerings. In the New Testament, Jesus used leaven as a symbol of Corrupting influences, as seen in the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, right? In Matthew 16, 6 and in other places, he warns the disciples, you know, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Meaning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The New Testament writers also used leaven as a symbol for corruption and evil influence as well. Uh, First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul makes a reference to leaven as well. So the parable of the leaven in the bread. So when Jesus gives this parable, however, He doesn't use leaven as a symbol for corruption, as was done in the past. He compares the kingdom to the simple and common task of making bread. The leaven in the flour mixed together makes the bread rise. It influences its growth. It makes it change its look and taste and eventually prepares it for its final purpose and that is, of course, to be eaten, to provide life. Pretty simple. You don't have to figure that out. Just observe how leaven works and how bread is made. Those are the conclusions that you come to. So this is the simple and recognizable image. This simple and recognizable image is placed alongside the kingdom. And the reader is left to conclude that the kingdom is like leaven. And the question is, well, how so? Well, the kingdom in the world is like leaven in the bread in the following ways. The kingdom begins as something that is sour and dead. Well, the cross of Christ. The humble death in baptism of every believer. That's how the kingdom begins, isn't it? And when added to the world, the kingdom influences the direction of the world and the growth of the world. And it makes it change its look and taste and it prepares it for its final purpose, which is the coming of the Son of God to judge. Well, what does Jesus say to His disciples? You're the salt. You're the light, right? You're the leaven. Okay. So we have to understand no one parable teaches us everything about the kingdom. Each parable gives us one or two pieces of the puzzle. For example, the parable of the love 11 gives us specific pieces of information about the kingdom, which are the following. First, the kingdom is something that changes and evolves. You know, we dwell in a kingdom which is in the process of change, so we must be prepared to change and grow as well. You add, you add the leaven and the flour together, there's going to be a change. You come into the kingdom of God, you, know, you confess Christ, you repent of your sins, you're immersed in the waters of baptism, you know, changes come, you're going to change. All right? Another thing we learn about the kingdom the kingdom affects everything else. The kingdom is not isolated, it's not a monastery, it's not a bubble in which we live excluding everyone who is not within. The kingdom affects everything around it. Everything that comes into contact with it changes for the good, are converted, become believers, or for the bad. The kingdom comes in contact with unbelief or evil. Well, that unbelief and evil either changes to belief and goodness or it continues in its disbelief and evil to its own destruction. But it's never the same. Never the same after that. You know, I remember working for a company many years. I had just become a Christian at that time. And the simple announcement. You know, I was happy. You know, I became a Christian. I was baptized last night. and I was telling my workmates that. You know, and they were like, what? Well, what's that all about? You know, they couldn't explain, believe and be baptized. They, they didn't know the Bible or anything. They didn't know anything about really about Christianity. OK. I mean, they were Catholic, but I mean, they didn't understand what my experience was. And I can still remember to this day, not just a few days later, you know, eating in the company cafeteria, having my lunch and this and that. And a bunch of the guys were there and women, you know, and they were passing around a men's magazine you know, with pictures and things like that. And they were saying, oh, look at this, oh, look at this. And they were passing it around. And then it got to me. The guy went to pass it to me and remembered what I had said to him and just said, yeah, no. And he passed it to another guy over there. I didn't say anything. I didn't say, no, no, I don't want to see that or anything like that. He just knew something had changed in my life. And he knew intuitively that this thing that he wanted to share with me was not to be shared with someone who just said, I've become a Christian, I've become a disciple of Jesus. change. A very little tiny change that I announced one day made a change in his perception of me and his perception of what he was doing. It dawned on him all of a sudden that he he was participating in something that someone else would refuse to participate in. There was a line. So the kingdom does that to people. The kingdom affects people, positive or negative, but it always affects them. Thirdly, the things that we learn about the kingdom from the parable of the leaven, thirdly, there'll be an end. Just as the bread reaches its final stage and purpose, so does the kingdom. Now other parables are left to give information about what the end will be, uh, you know, what will happen This one, this parable here, simply states that there will be an end. And that's it. So three things that we learn. And I'm not saying these are the only things. I'm sure if we sat here and we talked and got some more ideas we could come up with some other things. But certainly on the surface these are three things that we learn about God's kingdom, about the kingdom that we inhabit from the parable of the leaven. All right, let's go to another parable now in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to follow along in your Bible. The kingdom is like a dragnet. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind, And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place uh, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a simple image, a simple story. Fishing was a main occupation of those times and commercial fishermen would use large nets to harvest fish for selling at the market. The dragnet that he's talking about here, the dragnet was the largest of the nets. It was weighted down below so that it would sink to the bottom and it had corks at the top to keep the, you know, the top of the net um, on the surface of, of the water. The dragnet covered about a half a mile of water space And it picked everything up in its path. That's why they call it the drag net. They dragged everything. They caught everything, picked everything up into this net. Now in the parable the net is full. It's taken to the shore where the fishermen would begin separating the edible and saleable fish from the worthless worthless, uh, fish. The edible would then be placed in containers to keep fresh in order to go to the market and the unedible were simply thrown away. Now the people of Jesus' day, especially around Galilee, had seen this thing happen their whole lives. He wasn't telling them a story like, if it was me, I've never seen that happen. I've never been close to a fishing boat. But these people, they grew up with this. They knew exactly what He was talking about. In this parable, Jesus goes ahead and actually takes the comparison one step further to reveal the similarities reflected in the spiritual realm. Remember, in the parable of the leaven, he just gives the parable, but he doesn't give the application, you know, how the kingdom is like. But in this parable, he gives the parable, but he also gives the application to the parable. So it's much more valuable as far as information is concerned. He reveals that this parable points to the end of the world and the time of judgment. And since he said the kingdom is like a net thrown out to catch fish, the judgment here refers to the people who are in the kingdom, the ones who have been taken in the net. That's very important. Is he talking about all the fish in the sea? No, he's just talking about the fish that were caught in the net. That's an important distinction to make. So he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like what? Is like a dragnet that you know, picks up a lot of fish. So he's talking here about the people in the kingdom. Okay? We know that the net is the gospel which is cast out into the world and it brings in all kinds of fish, all kinds of people into the kingdom. Jesus says that at the end of the world the angels will separate the true disciples, those are the good fish, from the false disciples. Those are the bad fish. Now angels are the ones who will do this and this is also uh, repeated in Matthew 25, verse 32. So it's important to understand this is, this is about the judgment for those who are in the kingdom. This is not about you know, those in the kingdom will be saved and those outside the kingdom you know, will be lost. Uh-uh. This is all about, this is what will happen to the people in the kingdom. So the parable on the kingdom teaches some very different lessons than the one regarding the leaven. They don't contradict each other. They simply complement each other by adding more detail. Okay, So what do we learn from the parable concerning the dragnet? Number one, all kinds of people are brought into the kingdom. We know now that the gospel is the means to draw all people into the kingdom and all kinds of people come into the kingdom and not just culturally diverse, Not Asians or Africans or uh, Europeans or tall or short or male or female. Yeah, yeah, of course, all kinds of different people, but also all kinds of different moral people with all kinds of different commitments, levels of faith, degrees of understanding and commitment. Different in those ways as well. Number two, there is good and bad in the kingdom. Wow. <laughs> there is good and bad in the kingdom. I hear people say all the time, well, I'm not going to that church. Man, there are hypocrites in that church. No kidding. Is that like a news flash to you? <laughs> I remember a, a young preacher that I was training back in Quebec and you know he had been working for several years, you know, and I was discipling and training him in, in ministry and so on and so forth, you know. And one day he comes into my office and he just throws himself down on the chair, you know. <laughs> and I said, "What? What's wrong?" Well, I'm so fed up. I said, "What? Well, what are you fed up about?" Well, you know, brother, let's say brother Joe, okay? Just, well, Brother Joe, here I was you know, working with him and this and that, and I thought for sure we were going strong. He had stopped drinking and he, had, uh, he was flying right. And he was looking for a job and ah, it was great. And then I just found out that, you know, he got arrested for drunken driving. And I'm so fed up. And I said to him, I said, hey, OK, wait, wait, let me, get, let me get this straight. You, a minister, you're fed up with sin? Yeah, that's it. I'm fed up with sin. I said, <laughs> sin is what we do. Sin is what we deal with all the time. You think, you think, you think there's just sin out with the non-believers? Well, there's sin inside the church. As a matter of fact, we have a billboard going up here on 23rd, you know, that's 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 going to say, sinners are welcome at the Church of Christ, 24 foot across, 12 feet high, sinners are welcome. And then it says, at the Choctaw Church of Christ. Some say, well, I mean, I never. Well, that's all we have as sinners. We don't have anything else but sinners in the church. Redeemed sinners, forgiven sinners, sinners who are struggling with their sins, but sinners nevertheless. And so this this parable confirms the idea that in in the kingdom there are all people in the kingdom are sinners. Some are working on that, asking God to help them with their sins asking the Spirit of God to diminish the power of sin in their lives so that they can get the upper hand, dealing with their sinful flesh and their failures. You know, they're working at it and other people, yeah, they don't care. They're actually using the church or the kingdom as camouflage for their sinful activities. <coughs> I've been in very, very large churches where some people become members of the church just so that they can, I don't know, sell insurance or something. And I'm, please don't get me wrong here. Anybody watching out there or here, I don't mean to offend someone who earns their living by selling insurance. It's a perfectly noble career. But you understand what I'm saying. They're in the pew, but they're not in the spirit. And so this parable here you know, reveals that idea removes the naive thought that you know, if you've got 500 people in the church, you know, uh, members in your particular congregation, every one of those 500 people are sincere and doing their best. And No, of course not. Jesus teaches that all kinds of people find their way into the kingdom for a while. The net brings everybody in. The requirements to be a member of the church allow even insincere or evil people to be included if they want to. Because we don't read a person's heart. We just take them at their word, right? I mean, you go to the bank for money. <laughs> they want information. They want your social security number. They want a deposit. They want to make sure. You know, they, they ask a lot of questions before they release some cash in the church. What's the only question we ask? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Based on that confession, I now bury you in the waters of baptism. Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. We ought not to be surprised or discouraged even when we see or suspect that somebody who names the name of Christ, but not acting like a Christian. With this parable here, Jesus said, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. Don't be shocked. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disillusioned. So we learn that from the parable of the Dragnet. Third thing we learn. The kingdom, however, will be purified. When Jesus returns, not only sinners and disbelievers will be judged. God, through His angels, will remove all those from the church who do not belong there. We can fool society and we can fool the brethren and we can even fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. That's why we shouldn't judge. God knows who the true disciples, the true Christians are, and He will keep only these in the end. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Well, yes, it would be extremely harsh and hypocritical if a man or a woman in the church decided to take that position and say, you belong, you don't belong, you belong, you don't belong. That's not man's job. That's not our task. Our task is to love our brothers and love our sisters and give them the benefit of the doubt. And if something they actually do is wrong, then we need to call them on it in love. And we need to help them deal with that issue, whatever that is. Of course, this is a warning to everybody at various levels. For example, for those who are not in the kingdom, you know, Jesus spoke this parable not to disciples, but to the crowds who came to hear Him speak. So their idea is, whoa, you're in the net or you're not. We're in the kingdom or we're not. Jesus made it clear to all that there was to be a dividing line between those who were in and those who were out. In today's society, key words, what are the key words? Well, inclusiveness, tolerance, those are the key words. We even give two men or two women the full privileges of marriage even though 5,000 plus years of world history has reserved this only for heterosexuals. Even though every single religion in the world condemns it. Even though homosexuals can't do the one thing that civil marriages were designed to protect and that is the production of children. The one thing cannot be achieved with that kind of union. And yet in our society We give them the same blessing and rights in law because we want to include everybody into everything and we do not want to be seen as being intolerant of anyone. Christianity is also inclusive and tolerant. I always hear the number one knock against Christianity by those who are not Christians is, oh, you people are so judgmental. You You think you're the only ones. Well, no, Christianity is inclusive and tolerant. Anyone can become a Christian. And all Christians are to be patient and loving, even in the face of each other's weaknesses. But Christianity has boundaries. And the boundaries are set by God, not by men. I know that in the church and in Christianity, a lot of, when I say men, I mean people, I know that within Christianity there are a lot of people that like to stand up and themselves establish where the boundaries are, but in reality only God is allowed to establish the boundaries, not men. We have to uphold them, but we don't establish them. So one of the basic boundaries of Christianity is, well, the gospel itself. If you believe and you respond to the gospel in faith, You're in the kingdom. Mark 16, 16. Those who believe and are baptized, they'll be saved. On the other hand, if you disbelieve and you refuse to respond, well then, you're not in the kingdom. Nobody arm wrestles you or tackles you and drags you into the kingdom of God. You, You have to want to come in. And you come in based on the requirements established by God. This is not intolerance. It's not bigotry. This is God's boundary, and those who follow Him also hold to the boundary that He has established. I, I, I can be friends. I can be friends with an atheist. I can. We can go golf together. You know, you know I like to play golf. We can go golfing together. We can go out and eat together. The atheist can come to my house with his family we can share an evening, play a game. I don't know. Monopoly. You know, I can do all that with an atheist. But there's one thing I cannot do with an atheist. I can't have fellowship with an atheist. I can be his friend, but I can't be his brother. That's the difference. I don't, I'm not the one that made that boundary. God, God made that boundary. So Jesus demonstrates the idea of boundary in this parable. Some are in the net and others are not. So it's possible to be left out if we so choose. Another warning to those in the kingdom this time. To those in the kingdom, uh, but in name only. In other words, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm a fish in the net, but I'm not in the spirit. I'm a Christian, but I bear no fruit. I'm one of those non-edible fish. To these, Jesus warns that they will not escape judgment. Some people think they can hide out in the church. You know? They can have just enough religion to keep them saved while still enjoying the world. This parable warns that these will, there will be a sorting out within the kingdom as well in order to clean out the hypocrites and the deadwood. So Jesus wants to offer God a living church, a kingdom alive in Christ when He comes. So those who are really of this world and just faking their Christianity, they'll be removed. They'll be removed. It's not us to do, It's not up to us to decide. I, I hate seeing that among Christians. You know, deciding who's in, who's out. It's not our job to decide who's in, who's out. Oh, oh, you, oh you people, you don't do things exactly like we do them. You're out. Who gave you that right? Who give you that right? We don't have that right. The only right we have is to love. We have a right to try to love everyone. I'm not saying we tolerate sin in the church. No. There are passages that explain to us what we do, what we're supposed to do. If we see a brother or sister who has sinned or who has offended us, of course. But to sit there and decide they're in, they're out, they're in, they're no. Jesus assures us, don't worry. In the end, I know who are the ones who are in and I know who are out. And judgment will be made at the proper time. As far as you're concerned, you you and me, go preach the gospel. (laughs) Just throw the dragnet out. Bring the fish in. Finally, a word of encouragement. So there's, there's two warnings, but there's a word of encouragement too. To the true citizens of the kingdom. For those who know Christ, for those who obey Christ, for those who trust completely in Him and who are faithful to the kingdom and growing in the kingdom, there is the promise of a better place. They will be kept for rooms in the mansions of the Father. There's a great promise to those who manage to remain faithful. And part of remaining faithful is simply obeying Christ and allowing God to do what He does and doing what He's given us to do. We have have things to do in the kingdom. And the major thing we are supposed to do, we're, we're supposed to proclaim the kingdom. Get out there and proclaim the kingdom. Be the salt. Be the light. Leave the judging to God. Take that burden off of our hearts. The only judgment that we need to make on ourselves, our actions, examine, you know, examine ourselves. Paul says in First Corinthians, you know, examine yourself. He didn't say examine the brethren. He said examine yourself. If you do that, you know, that, that that's what gives a, that promotes a healthy spiritual life. All right. So we're going to stop at those two parables for today and keep on going. And that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the course here. We're just going to take these parables, strip them down, try to find things and then maybe near the end, try to put together all the things we've learned, you know, hopefully, be able to create a, a more accurate image of this thing called the spiritual kingdom of God. All right. Thank you very much for your attention.